Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. How did it come to this? The Gathering of what? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Ent Moot, our 16th proper episode on The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers from 2002. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. All right. Welcome to Moot Chat. Um, I was going to try and shove in a whole bunch of really funny puns into this, and then I realized that I'm not really funny and also don't know any puns. So the three or four that I've managed to work in here, everybody is obliged to laugh as hard as possible uh, at them to make me feel good about myself, uh, even though I can't actually hear you guys laughing. Nevertheless. Um, we're going to chat about moots. Uh, moots and things. Ha ha ha. Uh, that's our first little joke there. And the joke behind that will become clear, God, I hope, uh, shortly. Um, this uh, Today's episode is, of course, concerned with the Ent moot. Uh, but that is not an entirely made up thing. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien took the inspiration for the moot from the very real moot uh, that did actually occur in, in history. And here, here we're getting a, a really sort of fascinating insight into uh, what philology actually is. And uh, in previous episodes, we've talked about how Tolkien was a philologist, which is a linguistic historian. Um, and and we really start to see in in some of the bits of pieces, particularly in the central bit of the two towers, um, where the things that he was reading about and and the uh, the kind of cultures and and uh, linguistic changes he was studying, um, or I should say, he made a career out of uh, studying and researching, um, really heavily influenced uh, the Lord of the Rings. A moot is is interesting because it's a it's a word that has a very fascinating cognate that makes it kind of difficult uh, to talk about, particularly where I live here in Scotland. But uh, moot just means meeting. It just means a meet, a place to meet, a place to converse. Um, and it is Old English and Old Germanic in, in sort of well, obviously if it's Old English, it's Old uh, Germanic in origin. Well, not necessarily, obviously. Anyways, whatever. Old English, Old Germanic in origin. Um, and it comes from a, a verb moot, I think, uh, would be the way to say it, uh, which means encounter or converse. The reason I say it's kind of fun slash funny to talk about as a word uh, when I live in Scotland is it's a cognate with the Scots word moot, uh, which means assembly. Uh, however, both of these things meant meeting and assembly, but came to that meaning in quite divergent ways. Not necessarily something worth getting into here, but if you have some time to go look through, like, um, what is it? Wiki? Wiktionary, that's what it is. Uh, and look mm -hmm. at the kind of history, the family tree of the word moot. Uh, it's well worth doing, especially looking at the Scots versus the uh, Old English comparison, because that's kind of fun ways of going in circles to get to the same conclusion. Anyways, folk moot. Which is obviously where we get the the template, the word template for entmoot was literally just people's meeting. It was the meeting of the people, um, and it's it is a type of let's call it loosely governance state organization uh, that has existed pretty much as long as the historical records of have existed, certainly in Europe. Um, we got our first mention of it uh, by Tacitus in three forty. VC, I think it is. Nobody who knows classics quote me on that because I simply do not give a shit about Rome. Um, but more importantly than that, we have a linkage to Britain, um, which is that there's a the, the earliest written reference to moots uh, and to things, uh, which I will describe in a second, is written on Hadrian's Wall. And Hadrian's Wall, for uh, those who don't know, is a wall that bisects uh, the British Isles and is uh, formally known by uh, esteemed scholars and classicists and, and, and people who really dedicate their lives to the serious study of this thing as the holy shit the Romans could not be fucked going further north wall. Um, and that is about 30, well, no, it's about 100 miles south of where I live here in Dundee. It's in Northumbria and it is the furthest north the northernmost point the Romans ever got <laughs> in Britain, except for the wall that's 30 miles south of me, which is the Antonine Wall. But it's the one everybody does their walks on. So if you're ever in the UK, go, go walk that. It's very muddy and very fun. Anyways, 
Hadrian's Wall, it's got a reference to a moot and a thing. And these things go together to make meeting, kind of. Uh, a little bit of a false etymology there. But if we get it trending on Twitter or Instagram, we can convince <laughs> a whole lot of people that's it and then make ourselves internet gods. Anyways, moots and things, these are things that go together. And they both refer to the same grouping of people. A, a mooting or a thing then had a vastly more interesting sort of etymological history than moot, which kind of died out. Um, it almost died out, actually. Uh, law students, uh, the most terrible people on earth. Uh, sorry to all the law students who may or may not listen to this, or to the lawyers. Uh, damn you all. Um, law students, lawyers, they love doing these things called moots, which are like mock trials. Don't ask me why they don't call them mock trials. Um, I spent a good bit of time uh, pestering my partner, Connor, who is a legal journalist today, uh, asking him why the fuck do they not call it a mock trial? And his answer was, they do be like that. Uh, so there it is. Lawyers are weird. Uh, they're the, pretty much the only people who have kept the term moot alive besides the end moot. Uh, the second half of that phrase, though, the thing, the tang, um, has had a very fascinating and vibrant etymological history. Um, the oldest parliament in the world uh, is the Icelandic Althing, um, and that has existed since 800 AD. Um, not continuously, but kind of continuously. They get in on a technicality, but it's still a very impressive feat uh, to have lasted as long as they have with essentially one uh, parliament. And they are the Althing. Um, and the reason why uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in the south of England and the Icelandic uh, parliament have uh, such a strong commonality in the things that they used to call basically folk meetings uh, is because of the Vikings, who you may have heard of. Um, and the Vikings did some really impressive colonization uh, and got basically all of the Nordics and Britain. Uh, and took and and were really really crucial for do, for taking and spreading a lot of the the kind of stranger um, uh, kind of borderlands hinterland speak of uh, old English uh, or uh, blending it with uh, the the sort of Norse speech. Um, if you've ever been to York uh, and England, you'll see a lot of that. If you've ever been to Scotland, uh, especially on the east coast where there was a lot of Viking influence, uh, the old Scots in particular will have a lot of very Norse sounding words, uh, and that's because of the Vikings. So J.R.R. Tolkien, Iceland, uh, Iceland. Uh, if you've ever seen the 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 live stream the Icelanders do of the Big Mac that has just like never molded, uh, that thing is is <laughs> intimately now linked to J.R.R. Tolkien through the majesty of the Vikings. Uh, and so far, I think the culture I've managed to offend and stereotype the most egregiously in this episode so far has somehow ended up being the Icelanders. So that's exciting. Um, but moots and things, uh, they are uh, this sort of very, very old proto-democratic uh, form of of a town hall, town council, town like parish council, uh, shire meeting. There's the shire moot uh, that's described in the very, very start of Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and, and they are this tradition of, in particularly, not, I would not say communitarian uh, societies, but uh, less rigidly bureaucratized societies. And that does not necessarily mean primitive. It just means they're not bureaucratized and they don't have a centralized state. Uh, moots and things tend to be a very common way of organizing these societies. And so they will often comprise uh, the elders of a society or the, the sort of uh, highly esteemed representatives of it uh, who all come together and debate uh, and uh, not debate like the British Parliament, but debate and discuss. And I don't want to idealize it too much because it's obviously still turbo fucked. But um, it is uh, really, really common, really rich history, um, particularly in uh, the Nordic countries and particularly in Nordic countries where there is a written record of these things, you get a lot of uh, valuable insight into the, the sort of cultural creation and cultural the constant cultural creation of, for example, uh, the Icelandic culture, the Norwegian culture, uh, the Danish in particular is another really good example of that. You get that all through the, the sort of discussions and happenings of the moots and the things. J.R.R. Tolkien chooses to use uh, the thing, the moot, the thing, the moot thing, and moot in <laughs> Lord of the Rings because it does two things for us. One, it's very old sounding. In, in Britain in particular, but also in America, there is not a 
a cultural context for a whole bunch of fucking weirdos standing together and hashing things out in a broadly civilized way for hours and hours and hours on end. Both of our parliamentary or congressional systems are far more um, conflict-oriented than that. And and they come from, uh, well, to a lesser extent Britain, but but certainly the US, come from a, a, an Enlightenment-era tradition where uh, debate, loud, angry debate, uh, and, and, and sort of... Uh, uh, hyperinflated conflict is is absolutely instrumental to how the democratic process works. Uh, so when you're reading something like the Entmoot, where it is by and large not a uh, Jacques or Joseph McCarthy ass looking uh, kind of setup, you're going to already immediately feel some distance from what this is. It is going to be recognizable to you, and it's going to be recognizable to you as something quite civilized, because of course the Enlightenment teaches us that all debate and discussion is worth having. Ha ha ha! Well, good joke. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, um, it will still seem foreign to you, and, and this is one of the things that Tolkien is, mas- is a master at: is is taking the 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 closely held and the understandable and the sort of familiar to us, and then using some part of his philological training to blow that out of the water and make it seem totally foreign and totally exotic to you. The other reason why he does he brings this kind of element of the moot in not just because he's a big fan of the Norse shit, um, but is also because um, it has a it has an element of, of ancientry to it. So it's not just foreign to us. It's foreign in the way that the, the falling of Rome is is foreign to us. And that is, it, it, it immediately evokes something so old that we cannot possibly fully understand it. It is, it, it seems, some people would say primitive, I would argue just different, um, but it seems ancient. And so immediately by evoking the the moot or the thing, we're getting a sense here of of the Ents as a people or as, as a group who are very, very strange and very, very different to us, although still recognizably quote unquote human in some ways, also old as balls. Yeah, I was just going to say that's exactly what they're trying to communicate with how long it's been since the last Entmoot, or at least the impression Treebeard is giving us that it's been like I mean, I don't know if uh, Tolkien has documented the last time the Ents mooted or not uh, prior to this. Is that <laughs> no. anywhere in there? No. Um, but he says it's been an age. So at the very least, I would say it's second age. But I bet you it goes well beyond that. Um, first age, if not the pre-first age stuff. What's it called? Year- A year of the trees. Yeah. Well, it would make sense for it to be that year. <laughs> uh, I, I know it's not. I know it's not. I was going to yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I guess I should play my Game of Thrones klaxon, I guess, if we ever got one. <laughs> um, I did I did like what you were saying about the Viking influence on all this, um, because it is the Viking culture in George R.R. R. Martin's story, A Song of Ice and Fire, that pays homage to the moot in general. Um, anyone who's read or watched uh, A Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones is probably familiar with the King's Moot of the Ironborn which is a very memorable scene from the fourth A Song of Ice and Fire book, A Feast for Crows. Um, In fact, it's one of the most metal scenes in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. So as you would expect, it was hugely simplified, dumbed down, and defanged for Game of Thrones. (laughs) But in in both, the Kingsmoot serves as a council of Ironborn captains, choosing their next sovereign in the face of a secession crisis. Any longship captain may participate because in the Ironborn culture, every captain was a king on his or her own ship. They'd give big stump speeches and lavish riches on the other captains in order to win their favor. And in the end, whoever drew the loudest cheers from their fellow captains was put on the sea stone chair, which the throne show also dumbed down by calling it the salt throne. (laughs) Uh, just to refresh the show version, which sucks, uh, King of the Iron Islands, Balon Greyjoy, who was father to Theon and Yara, was killed in season six, episode two, by his brother Euron. And in episode five, the Ironborn held a king's moot to determine who the next ruler would be. The main choices in the show were Yara. Um, Theon had ceded his claim to his sister since he was broken and castrated by Ramsay Bolton, and the other candidate was Euron Greyjoy. This all took place in spring 2016 and was filmed mostly summer-fall 2015. So while Yara and Euron end up being a really on-the-nose take of Hillary Clinton and Donald (laughs) Trump, to the point I think Euron says he's going to make the Iron Islands great again, or whatever. it was so on the nose that even CNN did a segment about Hillary and Trump with a background image of Yara and Euron Greyjoy. Oh, my God. 
So, yeah, the show scene sucked, was totally underwhelming. There was a lot of dickless Theon jokes, which had already worn out their welcome. And basically, it just existed to level up Euron Greyjoy for the show's really awful purposes it had with that character going into the last two seasons. It also just took place on nondescript cliffs in the Northern Ireland near Ballantoy Harbor. Um, it served as a good backdrop for just general Iron Island scenery, but as you'll hear in a minute, it was not a good venue for the book version of The King's Moot. So yes, the book version is something else entirely, even if it ends up serving the same purpose of making Euron King. In the chapter, The Drowned Man, we experience the events through the eyes of the priest Aaron Greyjoy, brother to Balon and Euron, uncle to Theon and Asha. Yeah, Asha Greyjoy is her real name. The show changed her name to Yara because they feared it would be too confusing with the wildling Osha, who was the protector of Rickon and oh, Bran Stark. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're, we're just dumbing down everything here, so... Mm. Balon Greyjoy's death occurs way earlier in the books, about the same time both the Red and Purple Weddings take Rob Stark and Joffrey Baratheon to their graves, respectively. At this point, Balon's only living son, our good friend Theon, is still wallowing away in Ramsay Bolton's captivity, so Balon's firstborn son is considered missing and or dead by most of the Iron Islanders. Next in line would be Balon's elder brother, Euron, but our point-of-view character, Aaron, does not want his brother, Euron, to take the throne. Euron of the books is altogether something else. He's a one-eyed pirate whose actual plan is to attack and dethrone God. He's a failed pupil of the Three-Eyed Crow, Bran's mentor figure up beyond the wall, and one of the cruelest men around. He cavorts with wizards and freaks, rapes and pillages across the planet, and his flagship, the Silence, is oared by slaves whom he had the tongues ripped out of, thus giving the ship its name. Aaron wants the throne to pass to Victorian Greyjoy, the younger brother of Balon, and someone who is more orthodox Ironborn. Victorian is a big dumb brute, maybe the dumbest character among George's entire cast, and is pretty much the same mold as King Balon was before him. The other major suitor is Asha Greyjoy, who is clearly the best pick from the reader's point of view. She's essentially the liberal or republican alternative to the two other monarchist candidates. <laughs> So the King's Mood takes place not on Pike, which is the capital of the Iron Islands, but instead on Old Wick, on Naga's Hill, which is crowned with the stone ribs of the dead sea dragon Naga. Nice. The 40 ribs on the hill come up like trees or the walls of a great unroofed hall. It's a very metal location, going back, uh, going back to one of the reasons the show disappointed me. Anyway, after some of the third-party candidates get less than 1% of the vote, <laughs> we turn to our three Greyjoy candidates. Asha is the one that offers liberal reforms and a move away from the pillaging and reaving of Ironborn culture. As gifts to the other captains, she presents pine cones and rocks, representing the lack of treasure taken during Balon's invasion of the North. The Ironborn reave and pillage, and yet mostly remain poor pirates because they never think bigger. Of course, this means no favors or bribes for the other captains, and with much else in Westeros, the male captains have no desire to be ruled by a woman. Victorian Greyjoy comes next, pretty much the status quo candidate, offering a fair share of plunder to the surrounding captains. He has the blessing of the last Greyjoy brother, the priest Aaron, who claims Victorian a godly man and the clear-cut best choice. But then you hear it. I'm going to try to make a demon horn sound here. <laughs> Nice. God, that was off. Nice. <laughs> that audio cue is for Dragonbinder, a giant Valyrian horn that is said to be able to bind dragons to the owners of the horn. Owner versus the blower of the horn, as everyone who blows his, this horn has their lungs burn up from the inside. Euron Greyjoy gives his speech, not to be king of Iron Islands, but the king of Westeros. With the horn and lavish plunder to share, the likes of which most had never seen, Euron wins the crowd over with his promise to take over Westeros in full, and he will do so by using the dragon horn to bind one of the three dragons known flying out east, and through it, the silver-haired queen in the east to be his bride, the one they call Daenerys. There's a lot more to it, as Euron plans run deeper than that. I'll save you all the talk about his plan to attack and dethrone God. <laughs> But this is George's analog to the Entmoot, 
and one of the best chapters he's written thus far in the Song of Ice and Fire saga, which uh, not a cast ASOIAF, you might know that because I podcast there about Game of Thrones <laughs> and a Song of Ice and Fire. No, that, that's fascinating no, as well. Too. And I think that's it's also interesting hearing about that because I think that's also a pretty good enunciation of the sort of differences in storytelling like proclivities between Tolkien and Martin there, which is that like Tolkien's kind of using it as a moment to to kind of slow the plot down a bit and, and refresh kind of Miyazaki style, um, but also in part like a really sort of long bit of history and culture that might not otherwise fit into uh, into the sort of n- natural kind of plot beats, whereas Martin seems to be using that as like a as an opportunity to really raise the stakes, build the kind of excitement, and not as a as a chance to kind of slow down the plot and and bring it into sort of shift it into a lower gear. Yeah, um, one of the funny parts about it is um, the Ironborn, like culturally, like as a collective, are one of the stupidest groups of people around <laughs> and one of the least forward thinking. But this is as close to a democratic election as occurs anywhere in the story. Otherwise, well. like it's literally and um, even just the fact that Asha Greyjoy can be there and submit herself as a candidate is like more gender inclusive <laughs> than most of Westeros, um, which is kind of why I did not like the show version where they made a bunch of eunuch jokes at Theon's expense, um, because it is something that wasn't particularly gendered in the book version. Um, even though obviously I said like, she's a woman, they don't want to be ruled by her, but it was gendered in a different way and not just biological essentialism and what's between your legs kind of thing. Um, but anyways, I think it's very fascinating. It's definitely one of the best chapters. Um, but it's also, um, like I didn't know moot was a real word before I started (laughs) doing research. Uh, so like when I saw King's moot in a song of ice and fire, I'm like, Oh, this is clearly the ant moot or George's like version of a moot that he probably definitely got from J.R.R. Tolkien anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's also kind of, it is true because, um, you know, these words are not unknown words and these are not like unknown histories. But I, I think as with a lot of things that ended up kind of becoming hallmarks of fantasy um, in the last hundred or so years, 70 or so years, um, it's really like they all kind of trace, well, not they all, but a lot of them trace their sort of heritage to things that Tolkien kind of excavated from the academy and and, and from sort of uh the the ivory tower like ivory tower history and and popularized or really gave a new life to um through writing lord of the rings and and like you know things like the moot but but there there are kind of so many different plot beats and, and sort of elements that like you would have access to these things if you read Beowulf, if you read any of the, the sort of Icelandic sagas, you, you would you would totally be able to access them. It's not like we've lost this knowledge, but like the number of people who would actually read these things or think about these things or have these things be part of their consciousness is so much higher because Tolkien was a guy who was just really obsessed with these things and and like i guess in some ways that's really the 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 power of committing to the bit i guess When we last caught up with Treebeard, he was but one end. Now, there's a whole cabal of them. But is it an army of them? This is a moot. An ent moot, to be exact. And with the creaking and bending of ancient tree herder bodies, we get valuable insight into one of Middle-earth's strangely most democratic, uh, bodies. <laughs> fast forwarding through a brief and uh, calming traipse to Helm's Deep to catch up with the boring side of this story, we return to the exciting <laughs> Entmoot, and oh boy has time passed. But don't sweat it, all that time was not lost for naught. The Ents have come to a decision of world-altering importance. We have just agreed. Yes? I have told your names to the Entmoot, and we have agreed you are not orcs. Ta 
Time, time. The question of time is always at play here. Mary and Pippin, young and in the prime of their lives, but also part of a culture that is as youthful as youthful can be. You know, kind of like this guy. Thesis, please. Treebeard and the Ents are not. They are as old as time itself, and even the longest wars of the elves feel like mere battles to them. And of course, the Ents have been abandoned by all of Middle-earth, and if they're, and their decline is not just terminal, it is inevitable. For the Ents... There is one way out. But theirs is not a rallying cry. Theirs is the howling sound of defeat. The Ents cannot weather this storm alone, because this is not their fight. But Mary, with reckless futility, reminds them that even the Ents belong to this world. But who cares, man? Doomerism is in. Take the black pill and just tweet through it. Which Pippin does, because Pippin is a hefty old dose of hashtag BuzzFeed hashtag millennial representation. What if Treebeard's fright asked Pippin, easily influenced? Maybe we should just fuck off to the pub, have a pint, and wait for all this to blow over. There won't be a pub, Pippin, says Mary. If Sauron wins, he'll ban you from buying booze after 10 p.m. and institute the horrific war crime that is minimum alcohol pricing. Oh, wait, hang on. I'm being told that's not cartoon villainy. That is, in fact, the Scottish Parliament. Oh, well. And on that note, deprived of beer and bereft of hope, we say farewell to the hobbits and the chances of the free peoples of Middle-earth. So today we are covering three scenes that intermix between the Helm's Deep scenes we discussed last time and will discuss next time. Content-wise, they are pretty light. A total of 5 minutes and 40 seconds of runtime for the combined scenes we cover today, and that's with the extra E content that I didn't bother subtracting out when doing the math. The first scene especially is really light, which is Treebeard, Mary, and Pippin arriving at the Derndingle, a little clearing where all these scenes take place. Tolkien's book describes it as a wide depression surrounded by evergreen trees with three tall birches in the center. That centerpiece is not here in the films. In lieu of the birches is a sharp, angled piece of rock, which reminds me a bit of a sundial centerpiece. Not a change I feel needs justifying, but I think the birches were eliminated to put the focus on all the other ants that arrived shortly thereafter. Beech, oak, chestnut, and ash ants are named by Treebeard as they come in. The camera does a nice 180-degree pan around Mary Adock as he sees the gathering ants behind and in front of him, and the sightlines of these shots work better without the birches in the middle. The other ants we see, which are unnamed in the uh, film, are mostly CGI creations, since they don't really have to interact with any tangible elements like, say, Adam Monahan or Billy Boyd. The other trees appear more misshapen and twisted than Treebeard, but roughly the same size. Um, yeah, and so this is really interesting as well, because if you go back and watch um, when we first meet Treebeard and, and look at how he moves and, and how he is quite literally animated, you'll see kind of a bit of a stop motion effect to Treebeard. And, and that's not like a product of not having the right uh, animation capabilities in uh, 2002. It is entirely the opposite. They, the, the, the team working on Treebeard chose to give him a stop motion look to how he moved right after we meet him, to give him the sense of a figure who has literally not moved in hundreds of years. So that it wanted they wanted it to seem creaky and kind of like he was kind of still getting the kinks out. And if you look at the other trees here um, in in the ant moot, in the in the circles, you will see the odd one who does kind of maintain that movement, that stop motion movement, stop motion motion, <laughs> um, <laughs> as they're hanging out around the around the moot. Um, and it's just this this really small little touch that I think really helps to 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 kind of bring this whole uh, cadre of people to life. You know, there are some of the ants who who have been obviously just taking the longest fucking nap of their lives and have no idea where they are now that they've woken up. Um, and then there are others who are a little bit more limber, a little bit snappier, um, who are closer to what Treebeard now moves like now that Treebeard 
Greybeard's kind of warmed up. And and when, when we get to see all of these ants hanging out like that, you get to see these little bits of motion and these motion differentials that really build up uh, what this world is. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything on Derndingle in terms of etymology or where that might come from? Because I always snicker when I see the word dingle anywhere <laughs> in my uh, classic literature. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I do. I this is a this is a word I'm very excited about. Um, so Dern uh, is a is a a prefix, I guess we'll call it in this instance, that shows up a strange number of times in. The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'll make that joke that um, if I had a penny for every single time the the prefix Dern showed up in Lord of the Rings, I'd have two pennies, which is not a lot of pennies, but is a weird number of pennies. Um, And it does show up in my favorite character, uh, Eowyn. Eowyn, when she rides Mm -hmm. from Don Harrow in secret, uh, she names herself Dern Helm. Um, And the Dern in Dern Helm and the Dern in Dern Dingle mean the same thing, and it is secret or hidden. Um, And and this is kind of crucial because Dern Dingle um, in in the book uh, is a Western word. So it's the common tongue is is the the, the language of the men. Um, And it is from the days of yore when the men still knew what the ants were. Uh, And so like with the the moot itself and like with the sort of evocation of uh, old English that we see all throughout the Rohirrim plotline, this is again Tolkien choosing a word here that is meant to sound somewhat familiar to us, but just distant enough that we really feel like we would feel if we were reading Beowulf, that it's just a little too fucking old for this to to really feel like a part of our world and yet we cannot ignore the fact that it is a part of our world so Dern there means uh secret and shows up with Eowyn in in Dern Helm and then Dingle (laughs) Dingle means hollow uh, shallow or hollow or a deep dell Um, and it's really interesting because if you go back into the everybody's favorite book of all time I'm sure everybody's got a copy of this in their house the Oxford English Dictionary Um, (laughs) and I just had my access cut off as well so I'm really fucked off anyways um, the uh, if you go back into the OED you've got one reference or one example of the word Dingle from like the 13th century and then nothing until I think the 17th century. Um, and it's, and, and that in that sort of time frame there, we're really sort of moving from middle English to, to modern English. So it's a word that like occasionally shows up, but only when really pretentious pricks decide to use it. Um, and there's a whole kind of history there, uh, and, uh, in, in, uh, who read this word and decided to use it like W.H. Auden, uh, which, you know, uh, his poem, The Wanderer may or may not have been a massive influence on the Lord of the Rings. That's something we can get into later. Um, but it just means, uh, hollow. Deep Dell, hollow, uh, and it is actually of Dern and, and Dingle <laughs> is the one word that we have actually kept alive in modern English. We really don't have Dern at all, uh, but we do occasionally have a Dingle. Uh, so that's that. Mm-hmm. Um, and do I have anything else on that? Uh, n- no, this is just some more linguist, uh, linguistic kind of uh, uh, diversity in how the uh, Ents conduct themselves. They really have, by virtue of just hanging around Middle Earth for so long, have picked up and, and kind of um, uh, co-opted uh, the words of so many different languages into into their own vernacular. And, and that is really just a product of them getting to see so many civilizations rise and fall in the way that they have. The last little part of the scene is Mary literally licking his lips <laughs> as and as uh, Treebeard's about to say the Ents are going to decide whether to go to war, um, which could be Mary being super belligerent, but it could also just be dry lips. I don't know how the moisture levels are in Fangorn. <laughs> so after the Battle of Helm's Deep starts, we come back to the Ent moot, which is taking its goddamn time and working through the meeting agenda. There is an extended edition scene where by nighttime we learn that the Ents had only just finished saying, good morning. What do you mean, good morning? Treebeard is really great in this scene, making these broad hand gestures when saying, we have just agreed. And then he dead ass starts to fall asleep right then and there to some really great incredulous face acting by Monahan. Yeah, you were saying? Treebeard shakes back awake only to tell them all he told the other Ents were the Hobbit names. Good news is they've agreed they are not orcs with a big smile from Treebeard. Classic Pippin takes this as good news, but Mary is definitely the canny mover here. The Hobbit name discussion could have been an email. What they actually needed to do on the Zoom call was decide about Saruman. (laughs) We get some of Treebeard's most famous quotes here. 
don't be hasty, and it takes a long time to say anything in Old Entish, and we never say anything unless it's worth taking a long time to say. The latter is a total banger of a joke, because it takes Treebeard a good 17 seconds to say that single line, long enough to cut back to Merry and Pippin rolling their eyes and being ever so annoyed. <laughs> As we talked about in episode 32, The Turn of the Tide, the glacial pace at which the ants move and talk makes sense for trees and for their extremely long lives. The hobbits feeling more urgency in all things makes sense versus beings whose lifetimes are a thousand times longer than their own. In the books, that moot takes about three days in total to complete. The film condenses it down into one long day and night. Yeah, and I think even though they have condensed it down, I think there's still something really interesting here because th this end moot, and now admittedly it's only, like you say, five minutes of, of this uh, against the, the entire ass off of the movie, which is Helm's Deep. Um, but, you know, this movie does take... Um, the end moot and, and pit it against, in some senses, Helm's Deep. Um, and I think that's kind of tapping into a really um, interesting and important kind of legacy of, of, of film heritage, of, of movie heritage. Um, if you think about the kinds of films that have historically, that were historically made sort of around the time at which cinema itself was developing as an independent art form, um, you have to look to, to theatrical adaptations, adaptations of stage plays. Um, and, and if there's one thing that uh, is true about stage plays, it's that they're fucking difficult to do because you've only got one space to do it in. Uh, and like, obviously, um, experiential theater has, has really changed how that is, although even then they are still <laughs> trapped by the physical for uh, <laughs> their, their uh, performances, you know, quite literally four walls, uh, three walls, I guess. Um, and and um, if, if one thing is always true of plays it is that you have to build up the tension, not through action, uh, high, high, high drama action, not through people, uh, having these massive battles, uh, not through, uh, elves, uh, shield surfing. You have to build up the tension in a play through, through the, the tension that exists between people. Um, and so a lot of the early films, uh, and a lot of the early great films, um, were trying to ape this, uh, to various degrees of success. Um, one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, which is an adaptation of a stage play is 12 Angry Men. Uh, and and mm -hmm. that is a play, uh, that is a movie rather, that takes place entirely in one room uh, and has a cast of 12. Uh, and it is pretty much exactly what a, a good black box theater script would be. Uh, and it is a whole bunch of guys uh, really kind of verbally fighting each other to the death uh, in, in a single room, a single blazing hot room. Uh, and there is no, no, no guns are fired, no nothing. There's nothing exciting, nothing interesting. It's even a black and white film to boot. And it's still one of the tensest movies of all time. Um, and, and that is kind of the, the movie against which uh, I certainly uh, measure all other kind of films for, for their ability to build tension. And I think we, we often, well, I don't think, I know we often talk about these films as purely action films, but here I think Peter Jackson is, is really showing his ability to do um, non-action tension. And yes, it is building up to the last march of the ends, which is obviously the best action ever. Um, but it is it is reaching back in time towards uh, the the sort of historical hallmarks of of this kind of uh, speech oriented tension building and and this idea that you get a whole bunch of people in a room and and let the the kind of um, variability of uh, well human beings or or ants um, be the thing that that forces you against the wall so to speak uh, the entertainment wall. Um, and and so many of the best shows really make use of this. The the one, of course, that I am thinking of is Andor uh, and the ISB uh, <laughs> circular meeting room. But but there are lots and lots and lots of uh, scenes that are scenes TV shows that know to use a meeting room, a boardroom from hell as their way of framing tension. Or even movies, Fincher's David Fincher's The Social Network uses a litigation room uh, and just a couple of guys in suits and also uh, Jesse Eisenberg in sandals uh, to build some really painful tension and, and do a lot of uh, emotional heavy lifting in here. And in just five minutes, you know, uh, Peter Jackson isn't exactly going to be able to recreate uh, 12 Angry Men, but he's really reaching into that long historical legacy in, in cinema to to pull out some of the those sort of hallmarks to build that up for us and then set that in opposition to what's going on at Helm's Deep. No, that's a really good call. Uh, that just triggered something in my mind to compare the Entmoot to... Um, the command center in Dr. Strangelove, where all these men are gathered around and basically debating how the world is going to end and whether they're going to do it, 
which kind of has a thematic link to this as well. So that's a very good call. And 12 Angry Men is 12 Angry Men, sorry, is a banger film. You should absolutely go see it. I, d- I don't even think it hits 90 minutes either, which is like the perfect sweet spot for a movie. Yeah, I still haven't seen it, but <laughs> I will do. <laughs> you haven't seen 12 Angry Men? Uh, oh, sorry. 12 Angry Men. I thought you were talking about Dr. Strange. Not Dr. Strange. Sorry. Oh. Dr. Uh. Sorry. I got you. I got you. You, you should watch Doctor Strange Love too. It's very. I good. have seen Doctor Strange Love. Oh. I'm sorry. I was thinking Doctor Strange. <laughs> I was oh, like, they God. were fucking what in the Marvel movie? <laughs> oh Holy man. Shit. Okay. All well, right. my brain gave out. En- enough of that. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, in the last of our three act and moot set of scenes today. Treebeard tells Merry and Pippin that they, the Ents, will not be going to war, much to the consternation of Merry. You're a part of this world, aren't you? You must fight. Uh, I really love the shot of these giant trees just looking down on these two minuscule hobbits. The little ones ready to go to war, the big, bruising, heavy Ents choosing a pacifist approach for now. Skeen taught me that the axe forgets what the tree remembers, but these trees clearly have forgotten. Some of the ants are shown looking sheepishly or avoiding eye contact with Mary or Pippin or diddling with their fingers, which I think is a really nice touch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, with all this light fare that we're talking about, should we talk about going to war in a world at war or something like that? Let's fucking um, go. I rock, I rock, I rock. Um, yeah, I've been excited. I've been waiting about this. This is one of these things that like I didn't pick up on um, because I was born in the year 1998 and was five years old when the Iraq war started. So it kind of went over my head. Um, but when I went back in time to do my research on uh, these movies and, and the kind of book fan reactions to these movies, one of the things that really shocked the hell out of me was how mad a lot of the book fans were when the Two Towers came out at everything related to Treebeard and everything related to the ends um it was not an experience i had like they're noticeably different between book and movie for sure but like it was not i was not mad about it there there are so many other things to be to be mad about and that was just not one of them (laughs) but actually the more you read about why a lot of the book fans were fucked off about it and i think the more legitimate it becomes um and and one of the reasons why they were really upset was that um, in the year 2002, when this movie came out, um, the world, uh, the Yanks and their uh, their people, their their embarrassing little sycophants, uh, the Brits and everybody else in Europe, bar the French, uh, were gearing up to invade Iraq for fuck knows why, uh, for oil and blood. Um, and um, one of the the kind of big arguments that that really forced. Uh, not forced. It didn't fucking matter if they made the argument or not. But one of the arguments that people used to browbeat everybody into submission over whether or not invading Iraq was a good idea was this idea that there was this um, massive crisis, uh, this, the, the weapons of mass destruction uh, that existed, these tubes in Iraq that Saddam Hussein himself was personally parading about. Um, and it was a moral and political impetus to get ahead of these terrorists uh, in the Ba'athist party in Iraq and and fucking invade and blow them up ASAP before anybody else can. And also before we have a chance to have a debate about it or discuss it at all and think clearly about what's going on. And, and what's really crucial in these moments is that we are up against the clock. And if we don't do it now, the whole fucking world will end. And a whole bunch of people, I think, rightly pointed out that that is an insane thing to to kind of draw a parallel to um, in in a scene and in in a scene that in the books did not have that kind of flavor. Um, there was not a there was not a need to argue the the cause of war to the ants because the ants got it, um, and it wasn't like this 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 the for the people who are involved in Middle Earth, uh, Theoden accepted. Uh, and and they hadn't accepted for reasons that we've already spoken about. The the moral impetus to to go to war to fight against Sauron is abundantly clear. Uh, nobody really needs to be convinced in uh, in in any real way. Actually, to be honest, um, they just know that that Sauron is a con and that they have to do what they have to do. So Treebeards are already on side. Um, and and Treebeard doesn't need to be convinced. Treebeard doesn't need to see shit that's going on. Um, because there's already a moral uh, sort of uh, uh, force there. Um, in the world of the United States circa 2002, uh, and for the 10 years before that, um, 
manufacturing crises um, to legitimize war was basically the only thing the U.S. federal government did because it sure as shit wasn't educating people. Just kidding. It was also jailing hundreds of thousands of black men. That rocked. Uh, 10 out of 10 work, uh, Bill Clinton and Joe Biden. Uh, never forget. Um, anyways, um, manufacturing crisis was, crises was one of these ways that the U.S. Uh, really sort of asserted its position as a global cop uh, and, and global kind of babysitter with a fucking rocket launcher. Um, and, and one of the, the sort of things that it did was to, to invent these, these, these crisis points and then to say that if you were not um, uniquely or uniformly in favor of destroying these uh, these these crisis points, these these uh, causes of these problems, you were against Western civilization. Uh, this is a George H. W. Bush thing. Uh, it's also a George W. Bush thing. Hey, we love a little fucking uh, uh, <laughs> dynasty in the U.S., don't we? Um, and and putting this level of urgency on something that was not clear um, and deserved some sort of discussion or debate um, was really a very right wing technique. And and you actually see that that is happening here. That this is what Mary is doing in the scene is he is saying there is no time to discuss. There is no time to debate. We have to go fight right now because if we don't fight right now, the world will end. And that is, of course, exactly how uh, if there were a democratic process in the U.S., um, that is how it would have been stifled. But obviously, as we all know, the Democrats fucking folded instantly on the Iraq war uh, and were actually the cheerleaders for it. Um, but that is the kind of language that that was being used across the U.S., across Britain, across um, most of the English speaking world and the non-English speaking world to justify uh, gearing up to invade Iraq. Hmm. How do I defend the two towers without coming off as being pro-Iraq war? <laughs> hmm. um, so I'll say, uh, I, I think that's a fair reading. Um, I don't think that really jives with how I would break this down. Um, first of all, um, Isengard has specifically like destroyed half of Fangorn Forest, or how it, not half of it, but um, it, it's not Iraq, which has not actually provoked the United States into attack, um, or at least not directly, I guess. Um, I kind of view it more as the general cinematic language of Mary and Pippin have to do something as opposed to just being Treebeard's luggage that he carries on his head. Um, like, yeah. I think it goes back to that Gandalf line about how Mary and Pippin's coming were like the first pebbles of a larger avalanche. But I think because films like to have like direct causality in them, um, these films generally, and also all films, um, that's why you have Mary and Pippin kind of play a more active part in mobilizing the ends to war. Um, I think that's all I got <laughs> in terms of defending it. I can see it, um, but I don't think I don't think sitting in that theater in 2002, and granted we were technically not at war with Iraq as of December 2002, um, I don't think I put that reading on it, but may maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is what Peter Jackson was thinking, mm. although I think... I feel like Peter Jackson's a little better liberal than that. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's an interesting so. kind of thing because, you know, I see it now. <laughs> I definitely see it now. It's just not what I would have made the connection with in my first 10, 20, 30 viewings of, of this film. Um, and, like, I guess it, it, there's probably an overlap between the people who uh, were posting on these forums and, like, the people who would have been mad enough about this to go post on about this online in the year 2002 were probably people who had a very vested interest in it anyways. Um not to say like they're saying things that aren't there, but like these are probably people who are very, very actively involved in something political in some way. So I guess like fair enough, they can see it because I definitely pull some, uh, uh, let's say, stretches, interpretational stretches uh, when I'm dealing with these movies uh, based off of my own uh, batshit crazy politics. But but yeah, but it is one of these interesting things where I think also like as the kind of context of these films changes, like the, the audience context for these films changes, like it's a kind of weird little history, historical point that will kind of fade away, I think. Cause like, you know, we all make the, oh, two towers, twin towers jokes, ha 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 ha. Um, a second Pippin has hit the two towers, but <laughs> like there's this little kind of undercurrent of the Iraq war and like the mobilization or even the Balkans or even Rwanda that like, these are things that have by and large been, kind of memory hold um, because everything else that came was kind of so much bigger and more depressing and in some ways, not to say that the Rwandan genocide was not deeply depressing, but like white people didn't give a fuck. Um, 
And and I think like, you know, there are going to be people who are 18, 19 years old now watching these films for the first time who will just not at all think like, oh, ramping up to war, like there may have been some controversy about how this was like portrayed because like the the way that we talk about these things is so like it's just not up for debate anymore, I guess. There's not like a cultural debate about how you should frame like the issue of going to war. If you're going to war in a film, it, it must be because it is moral imperative. Otherwise, you're the villain. Um, and um, and if it is moral imperative, anyone who is even slightly hesitant about war uh, must be a villain or have like kind of villainous proclivities, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Like I said, I just kind of, putting my own analysis on it i'd also say that mary gave them a whole fucking day to talk and all they said was mention their names they just did a roll call so i think that one's kind of on the ends um he gave them a chance for a democratic process and they just completely fumbled the ball like say voting seven times to elect the speaker hey. of the house and failing to do so uh but no i i think i think it's definitely worth talking about um and it's hard to separate these movies from the time they were created in um, because we've ex explored the politics fully in terms of its views on women, its views on labor, all sorts of that stuff does permeate into these films. Um, so it'd be foolish to just reject this one outright in full as well. It's also so funny because like the, this is a, these are war movies. Uh, the prequels, the Star Wars prequels are also war movies. And it's funny how aggressively early 2000s the prequels feel and how like stealth early 2000s these are. Like this is literally the Twin Towers movie like it is in the fucking name and yet like it, there's not really like it is not these are more timeless than that and um, you know there's no Jar Jar Banks kind of waiting in the wings to accidentally do like the Patriot Act um in the way that Jar Jar Banks literally does that in, in the prequels um and so just like weird and deeply funny how like having a little bit of a sense of like you don't need to say every single thought that pops up into your head, George, can turn uh, a series of films from the Star Wars prequels into Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. um, and I am going to save this conversation for next time, hopefully. Um, but I do think there is something kind of thematically similar with the Ents hesitation and with Elrond and Galadriel talking about whether the elves should help the men in the upcoming war. Um, which ends up leading to Haldir and the elves arriving at Helm's Deep, which will be the opening to next week's episode. Um, I think they're trying to go for some of that like thematic cohesion that we've talked about several times as well. Yeah. But um, that's a whole other big conversation. That's probably going to be the meat of our next episode. So I'll just save it for that. <laughs> the last little coda here is Merry and Pippin talking to the selves. And while I haven't exactly verified this, I'm pretty sure concerning Hobbit's theme that kicks in here is the first time and the longest we've heard it thus far in The Two Towers. Um, we might have gotten a bar or two of it very early with Sam and Frodo, but we really haven't gotten much of it uh, throughout this film, as especially compared to Fellowship of the Ring or even Return of the King. I do think they're kind of holding on to that for Sam's big finish, which is kind of concerning Hobbit's crescendoing into this big like climatic release of a musical piece. But um, I'm just kind of going, you know, kind of just throwing shit at the wall here. I don't know if that's actually what was going on, but it did stick out to me how little we hear concerning Hobbits in this movie specifically. Yeah. And, and I also think it's nice that they use it here, not just because, you know, oh, they mentioned the Shire, drop the needle, but also because like um, it builds another commonality between the Hobbits and the Ents. Um, you know, the Ents and the Hobbits alike have been sort of turned inwards, focused only on their own affairs to not just their own detriment, but the detriment of the world around them. Um, they are um, uh, people who, you know, groups of people, groups of beings that are very, very concerned with their own traditions and not very concerned with sort of reform or revolution or any sort of evolution even. Um, but also, uh, in a purely details-oriented fashion, um, the Ents and the Hobbits are the only beings in Middle-earth that we know of that both have moots. Um, and so as they are sitting here doing this bureaucracy and Merry and Pippin are getting fucked off, it's almost like a ghost of Christmas present, gr Christmas future rather, uh, view into what their lives will become when they go back to the Shire and have to take up the mantle of leadership and of rulership. And they're going to have to deal with all this bureaucracy, but they're going to have to deal with it with a whole bunch of annoying little English bastards. So they're going to have it way worse. Um, but, but, but yeah, it's you know i almost i always wonder like when you hear the stuff that howard shore has written because he because he went away and wrote all of the music based off of the books like how how much like 
influence did he have over the music placement? Like, was he like, basically Howard Shore, if you're out there listening to this podcast, uh, which I assume naturally that you are, um, (laughs) can you like release some annotated notes on these movies? Because I'm desperate to know what and why the fuck everything shows up in the way that it does. Because sometimes it makes loads of sense like here, but I still want to know why. And at other times it is totally insane. Um, This makes sense, but I still want to know the the why. Absolutely. Um, and what? Uh, Fangorn and the old forest next to the Shire are once all one big oh, forest, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, th- so there's another connection there. This is basically like, this could be the Shire east of Middle Earth, basically, in Fangorn Forest, um, because they were once linked by this giant uh, forest, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so once again, the great characterization of the Hobbit characters comes through. Pippin, who's always a bit slower on the uptake, is kind of like, oh, well, maybe the older, bigger things are right. We do have a home we've been meaning to return to. Uh, Mary, and yeah, I'm going to call him Canny once again, (laughs) understands that this war is very much all-consuming and the forces coming from Fangorn will come for, or the forces coming for Fangorn will come for the Shire eventually as well, which is actually kind of a smart little observation given that Saruman does abscond from Isengard and his next move is to go to the Shire and start doing the same exact shit. Um, So it is kind of, it is kind of prescient even though the movies don't actually go there. Yeah. I also think it's really nice because um, it really sets Pippin up beautifully because like you say, like Pippin always kind of falls in line behind what the like, adults in the room really are are saying and doing and telling him to do. Um, and so Pippin has this like kind of divergent inclination to fuck off back home. Um, but then that inclination is quieted by Mary, who's like, no, we're not doing that. Um, it sets up nicely in Return of the King when Pippin has an inclination to do X, Y, and Z or say X, Y, and Z to Denethor regarding Boromir and Gandalf tells him, no, shut the fuck up. And Pippin says, no, um, he doesn't say no to Gandalf. He just does it anyways. And it ends up being the right move. Um, it ends up being exactly the right move. It ends up being the, the kind of the canniest move he could have possibly made. Um, and it shows that Pippin has kind of trailed in the luxury of not having to make decisions for all of his life. And then when he is thrust into Minas Tirith and forced to make decisions on his own, he is left basically without guard or guide. Um, he does actually make good decisions uh, and he does have good instincts and his instincts are fundamentally kind and decent ones. And that that fundamental kindness and decentness will always lead him to the place that he is, you know, predestined, meant to be or whatever. Um, and it's just that nice little change in, in, in who he is as a character from this point in The Two Towers to what he will become in Return of the King. Absolutely. And Mary puts the proper framing or understanding on this issue that will eventually lead Pippin to act, as we'll see at the beginning of the last March of the Ents. It actually kind of reminds me of how Fellowship of the Ring ended as well. Mary was the one who realized Frodo was ditching the group, but Pippin's rashness and stepping out into the open is actually what gave Frodo the chance to escape and really sets off all the different plot threads that set up the two towers. So... Um, Mary says something smart, Pippin does something kind of foolish, but it all ends up working in the end. I really like that. It's like pottery. It rhymes. So for today's token Tolkien book section, we just want to highlight one of the ends who gets a proper role in the book, but does not really show up here. Um, or he might show up. I've kind of had canon that he is the ant that gets lit on fire oh. in Isengard and then dips his head in the water. Um, that would be our friend Quickbeam, who is named for being such a hasty little ant. He is like the first ant who knew he wanted to go to war here. Um, but do you want to tell us a little bit about his Cinderin name and his etymology here? Yeah, once I dry my tears from the thought of Quick Beam being on fire. Um, <laughs> oh, sad. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Bregalad uh, is a cool name. It's a very fun name. Uh, it has, uh, so it, Bregal, uh, B-R-A-G-O-L, B-R-A-G-O-L, I think I spelled that right. 
uh, is the Sindarin mm-hmm. word meaning like sudden or hasty, uh, and then Galad uh, meaning tree. And of course, where have we heard Galad before? Galadriel, Galadrim, uh, Gilgalad doesn't count, but I'm going to say it anyways because it'll make some people mad. Um, but he's got this Sindarin name, um, and he's got this Sindarin name that is like basically a literal translation of his Western common tongue name. But it's also kind of interesting because it's a it's a very noble name. Um, it is a very, very noble name. Um, and it evokes, like, in, in the first instance, Brago, uh, Brago or Bregalas, mm-hmm. who are, uh, in their own rights, uh, important and desperately noble characters, uh, from the Silmarillion, uh, elves and, and men alike. Um, it evokes, uh, Galadriel and the Galadrim. Um, it evokes, uh, Gilgalad, of course. Um, Quickbeam is kind of being placed in this position, um, of being among the kind of, greatest of middle earth in a way um and not all cinder and names kind of have this there are a lot of cinder and names that are basically uh you know very workaday uh yorath uh, who shows up in uh ministereth and return of the king the books very workaday cinder and name not necessarily linking anyone to anything historically in a silmarillion uh baragond is another good example of one of these names but bregalad is is a very sort of uh noble and ancient sounding name uh and, and it's quite nice because Quickbeam is uh, I would say the opposite of noble and ancient in some ways and in, in his attitude towards life uh, and his attitude towards everyone around him. Um, but that is also true for a lot of the, the kind of more noble figures of the Silmarillion uh, before they kind of get their uh, legendary sheen uh, buffed onto their stories. You know, Galadriel fucks off to to Middle Earth because she just wants to take some stuff over. Uh, that is a, the, a sort of hate. Well, the Noldor in general are just like that. They're very hasty, um, and yet it, with the the benefit of time and the benefit of distance and lots and lots of deaths of the people who were wronged by them, the the hastiness and the swiftness of thought and of action uh, ends up looking like legendary heroism. And perhaps maybe that is in store for our good little Entling friend. Uh, Aside from the fact that he is a type of rowan tree or mountain ash tree, I got nothing else on him. (laughs) Um, What what was the name? Who's the guy in Gondor that's like the guardian of the Citadel before that works with... Baragon, okay. So not exactly the same. No. But there were some Bs and some Rs and some Es in there, so I thought it might be similar. Yeah, there are a lot of these in Cinder, and it's not easy to keep together. But it definitely stuck out that Bregolad sounds a lot more like an elfish name um, or even a Gondorian name to me than something that would be describing one of the trees here. So um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Uh, anything else about Quickbeam that you want to share with us today? Um, yeah. So so Pippin in particular has a habit, and there's not a way of saying this that doesn't sound insane. Pippin has a habit of kind of like picking up kids. Um, like a magnet, <laughs> like he's a magnet, but not like a, not a kitty magnet, but like, uh, like, you know how like there are little ducklings and you see a whole bunch of little ducklings in a pond and they'll all be from like different families, but they're all following each other in circles. Cause that's what little ducklings do. That is Pippin. Pippin is the slightly older duckling who just like has a whole bunch of ducklings following him around. Um, and quick beam is, is a good example of this, but um there are uh there's a whole host of there's really a a lot of these kids that pippin just makes pals with all throughout the lord of the rings and like part of it is because you know pippin's a hobbit so he's like child size but also pippin continues to represent as he did at the start of fellowship and and will continue to do even clear through the end of uh return of the king he he represents the sort of value and importance of keeping a, a sort of childlike uh and 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 child-friendly approach to life at the the sort of forefront of your engagement with the world and and even in the darkest moments of this story pippin always kind of maintains a bit of that kind of childlike joy and that kind of that that childlike awe and cheer and interest in life um and so is a great friend to the children <laughs> of the books, um, but is also a great way for the adults around, like the true sort of hard and cynical adults around him to um, kind of re- like reconnect, I guess, with their inner child because Pippin is, a, well, almost, not in Hobbit terms, but damn near in Hobbit terms, an adult. Um, he's a teenager, I guess, in Hobbit years, um, but he is more mature than children, but he 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 has that childlike quality to him that, that kind of forces adults to reconsider what it means to be an adult and what it means to truly be mature. Because if someone like Pippin can go through all the shit that he goes through and still be that kind of joyous figure, 
then maybe we all could do that if we so choose. And I think Quickbeam being so closely associated with Pippin uh, and by extension Mary, of course, uh, in, in the book, um, is really that kind of way of hammering in the fact that the not losing connection with with your your childlike nature is is absolutely crucial to surviving in the world. So before we sign off for today, we would like to thank our $10 and $5 patrons. Just a reminder, if you sign up at the $5 level, uh, we will give you a Middle Earth name and read your name off at the end of episodes on a rotating basis. And for $10 patrons, we will read your name every time. So today, we would like to thank Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothamana Palinque. And Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Carathungal. Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Idrinor of Kolkortad. <laughs> Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aranwo Minyatar. Cam Lewis, a.k.a. Selquendil. And Lake Wamelma, a.k.a. Zach Newman. And then our two $5 patrons for this week are Scott, a.k.a. Hravra... Ha- Ra- do you want me to do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. Bravo of the Catondil. And Zoe, a.k.a. Farrowin. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to all episodes, exclusive bonus content, and once a month, a Patreon-exclusive episode. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be making Quickbeam and Dead Ramiro fight each other to the death. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier Andretheon, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Oh, I had so much trouble like researching this dude because I kept searching for uh, Quicksilver or Silver Beam <laughs> when it was Quick Beam, and I'm like, I, I know it's his fucking name. Anyways. <laughs>